Hey there. Before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that we have just relaunched our introductory free meditation program, Meditation for Life, over at aboutmeditation.com. I encourage you to check it out. It's got some new videos, some refreshed audios, some guided meditations. Check it out. It's a free introduction. It's broken down into nine parts. Each one is only about five minutes, really short. So check it out over at aboutmeditation.com. If you're a newbie meditator, this is for you. Even if you're kind of a seasoned intermediate meditator, you'll probably get something out of this. So check it out over at aboutmeditation.com. You can sign up on our homepage, About meditation.com and you can pick up the free meditation for life intro course check it out now on to our show i think in the silence of meditation that silence that attracted me in that roman catholic church when it was quiet and there wasn't all the uh, fanfare of the of the of the sermon that that silence contains um, a great wisdom and a great truth. Mm. And that is what I think I try to continue to explore through both my practice of medicine and also my practice of meditation and Buddhism. Hello, and welcome to the One Mind Meditation Podcast. My name is Morgan Dix, and this is a show about meditation, mindfulness, and your health. So today, I'm thrilled to share with you my interview with Daniel Palazuelos. And Dan is a practicing physician and also really involved in global public health, is associated with the organization Partners in Health and works extensively for that organization. But my connection with Dan is through our kids. They go to the same daycare. And Dan and I recently discovered our shared passion for meditation practice. And Dan has such an interesting background and how he came to meditation, it turns out was really resonant with my own background. And, And so we in this interview, have a a fantastic discussion about Jack Kerouac, Gary Snyder, poetry, and then we go very deeply into the context of compassion, Zen teaching, Zen practice, our own mortality, how all these things really shaped Dan's perspective as both a human being and as a physician. And I think you're going to love it. It's a really, I had an awesome time talking with Dan. So I hope you enjoy this show. Please, if you do, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. That makes a huge difference for us. If you could uh, pop over to iTunes and find the One Mind Meditation Podcast, leave us a rating and a review. That would be awesome. All right, without further ado, Here's my interview with Dan. All right, Dan, welcome to the show. I am thrilled that we finally got it together and we're on the show together. Welcome. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. And everyone, Dan and I had the unique, a unique meeting point for this podcast, which is that our children who are similar ages go to the same daycare. And Dan and I just got chatting one day and we found this convergent point of interest around meditation. And when I heard a little bit about Dan's background, I thought, oh my God, let's get on the podcast. This is going to be really interesting. We can have a great conversation. So that is a short preface to this podcast. And Dan, I'd love it if you could just give me like your two to five sentence elevator pitch around who you are and what you do. Sure. My name is Dan Palasuelos. I'm a physician. I work at Brigham and Women's Hospital in addition to Harvard Medical School. I'm a hospitalist, which means that I work up on the wards. Uh, that's about 25% of my effort. Uh, so if you're an adult and you get sick and you go to the ED and they admit you, I might be your doctor. And then when you get discharged, I get you back to your primary care doctor and I may call you just to see how things landed out, but I probably won't see you again. For the other 75% of my time, I work at the medical school as an educator and also with a non-governmental organization named Partners in Health in what is called Global Health, which is essentially the practice of strengthening health systems in very vulnerable and poor countries, places like Haiti, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Lesotho, Rwanda. We also work in Latin America and Peru and Mexico. And in fact, uh, I a lot of my early work in my career was to help launch the program in Chiapas, Mexico. Mm. So for a large part of my work, I travel, present at a lot of conferences. I write a lot, usually with the effort of trying to get people to understand what we're trying to do with healthcare system strengthening. And then I try to teach these ideas to medical students at Harvard Medical School. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So, all right, great. I'd like to start where we, we usually start this show is to ask you a little bit about how did you start meditating? Like, take us back, give us the backstory. How did you be, become a meditator? And yeah, what, what were the factors that led up to that? Yeah, so I was born in Mexico, but raised in New York. And growing up on Long Island, New York, I was largely exposed to Roman Catholicism. In fact, I went all the mm. way through communion and all the rest. And I remember that I started to get really interested in going to church, but not during the sermons. <laughs> mm, right. I, I used to go into that incredible space when it was dark and, the, and there was just candles. Uh, and I used to sit at the pews. And I used to look up at the statues, but that really wasn't the interest. It was really just the space, you know, residual yeah. smell of incense. So you get exposed to Buddhism and to meditation, I think, through pop culture, and you get a lot of misconceptions through that. But when I started to read as a teenager the book On the Road by Jack Kerouac, mm. which I actually got exposed to because I had read that Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, the famous rock band from the 60s, that he read that book when he was a teenager. I was like, well, yeah. I like Jim Morrison. I want to read the books he read. So I read this book yes. and I read about this guy, Jack Kerouac, who 
was interested in Buddhism and combining Buddhism and Catholicism and and then also living a life that looked a lot more appealing than what was uh, sort of being sold to me as my future, which was very suburban. Yeah. For better or for worse, not criticizing that, but I didn't entirely see that as the future I wanted to choose for myself. And so I read on the road, had this idea that Buddhism was an interesting idea and did some proto-meditation in my own house, but really had no clue what I was doing. Yeah. Let me ask you, was it the character Jaffe Ryder, was he in On the Road or was he just in the subsequent book, Dharma Bums? So yeah, the guy who became Gary Snyder, right? Yeah. He became most prominent in Dharma Bums. Yes. So I know Gary Snyder and I've sat, he's stayed with me and I've meditated with him. Like you, he was a huge hero of mine. Awesome. In college and I had the privilege of going to a Zendo and then he was on the East Coast and I was lucky to work with an organization that was hosting him and, and he stayed in in my house. and Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I was just like, I got to ask him to meditate because this is the guy. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you know, it's interesting how a lot of that beat generation, what was called the beat generation by yeah. the publicity machine. Yes, yes. They, they were kind of in and out of East Coast, West Coast. I mean, sometimes too in the Midwest, but you, you would come across them and sort of get a little window into that world that they had inhabited uh, yes. decades yeah. ago. And, and Ginsburg lived in Manhattan when I yeah. was in high school. And, and you would always hear about, you know, I was also really, really interested in poetry. And there was yeah. a couple of poetry circles that we would hang out with, uh, hang out in. And you, it would always like, you know, Washington slept here. It was always people were like, oh, I hung out with Ginsburg. You know, yes, <laughs> you yes. could kind of mark who was who by, you know, how much they had hung out with Ginsburg. So it was fun because when I went to college, I went to Brown undergrad. Yes. Uh, my friends were all people, you know, the people who I gravitated towards were all the people who had gone through a similar pathway, you know, mm. that had read on the road, that were interested in Buddhism, that uh, also read Gary uh, Snyder and who yes. – you know, maybe even had meditated with him. Yeah. But the thing that was really cool is that the Kwanam School of Zen, which is a Korean Buddhism, a Korean Zen Buddhism, yeah, was actually s- sort of launched in Providence with students at Brown. And Zen Master Sang Sung, when he came over to Providence, was working, I think, in a, a laundry store, started to collect students. Mm. And one of them, a woman named Bobby Rhodes, ultimately became a nurse and a a Zen nurse, a Zen hospice nurse. Wow. And so in undergrad, I I participated a lot in the the Kwanam school connection that they had to Brown undergraduate. Mm -hmm. Then when I went to medical school at Brown, I had a hospice rotation with Bobby Rhodes Mm. and got to know her and was really inspired by how she combined the practice of meditation with hospice practice. Yes. And and I became very interested in end of life care and how, you know, in Japan, you know, people say that there's different religions and people kind of pick and choose pieces of religion depending on what they need from it. And that Zen Buddhism, a lot of times in Japan will be the, the service for uh, life transitions such as death. Mm. And that was really important for me because 
I, I had a couple of bad illnesses when I was a kid and maybe had near-death experiences. I, I'm not entirely sure, but but something in my mind started to ruminate around how I was fragile. Oh, interesting. And that I wasn't going to live forever. Yeah. And that, and nor, nor was anyone else. And, you know, most, you know, teenagers and early 20-year-olds don't think about death. No. It wasn't like I had a, a, a phobia of death or that I was trying to make amends with death. It, it was just like almost like an aha moment, you know? Like, wow, people die. Yes, and I'm going to yeah, die someday. Yeah, yeah. And, and what does that mean? And where do you go? Yeah. And Catholicism gave you a very simple answer, right? Yeah. My grandfather taught me a long time ago, God made me to know him, to love him, to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him in the next. <laughs> mm, nice. And I kind of felt like, okay, that's a lot of good rules, but it didn't go deeper. And so right. I started to explore that. It's prescriptive, deeper. yeah. Right, it was very prescriptive. So I started to get a little bit deeper into it through the practice of meditation and then was benefited a lot from the Sangha, you know, the group, and then the Dharma. At Brown? Yeah, at Brown and also through the Quantum School. Yes. I would often engage with their uh, Zen center that they have uh, out in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Mm. And this was more during undergraduate and medical school and early residency. Yes. It got harder and harder, you know, as travel picked up and all the rest to kind of make the trip out there. Yeah. But it was an important part of my formation is, you know, now someone who tries to keep that practice and that realization active in my everyday life. So did you, in terms of your exposure to Bobby, that, that was her name, Bobby? Yeah, it was Barbara. Bobby Rhodes. Yeah, Barbara Rhodes. But then um, Barbara Rhodes. She goes by Bobby. Was she a factor in you deciding to become a physician? Oh well, you know, I actually met her when I was already in medical school. Got it. Yeah. So the funny thing is that I, I kind of became a physician by chance. This is a weird story. Yeah. To get into the eight-year med program at Brown, you just had to write an extra essay as a high school student. So I always knew that I was interested in medicine, but I didn't really know what that meant. I wasn't, no one in my family is a physician. My grandfather was a dentist, but I hadn't rotated in, you know, like every primary care office. My parents were definitely not pushing me to become a physician. So I, I remember sitting in my basement just, and I wrote the essay. And I guess maybe because I didn't have as much anxiety around it or because I said something that was unique, perhaps, I was accepted. Then I went to undergrad at Brown, and I actually focused primarily on poetry. I, I even studied abroad a, for a year in England and did nothing but read poetry for a year and studied some Japanese culture in, in a, an institute that they have there. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the gong sort of sounded, and I had to go to medical school, and I was petrified because I didn't see in other physicians that I was meeting a role model, the role models that I wanted. Right. But then I started to see them in people like Bobby Rhodes. Yes. Practitioners who were using the science of medicine to get deeper into the human experience, which was not just the narrative of life and, you know, the ups and downs, but also something that even transcended narrative, uh, mm. something into something that was a deeper, more spiritual connection. And, and that is still full of great mystery. 
for me, continues to this day. Yes. But I think in the silence of meditation, that silence that attracted me in that Roman Catholic church when it was quiet and there wasn't all the uh, fanfare (laughs) of the, of the, of the sermon that that silence contains um, a great wisdom and a great truth. Mm. And that is what I think I try to continue to explore through both my practice of medicine and also my practice of meditation and Buddhism. Beautiful. All right. So let's back up a little. Like, So there's a couple points I want to pick up on. And also as you're talking, I'm, it's very cool to hear you tell your story because I, I relate on a lot of levels. I also studied English and poetry mm. in in college. I went to Emory University down in Atlanta. And great. they had a great English department, which had two beautiful professors who were really connected to the Irish poets. And mm. I ended up kind of diving into that and loving it. Mm. But, um, it, you know, found similar to you that there was a mysterious context to poetry that, Different than just literature, although literature could do this for me too, Mm. poetry was able to open a space of possibility and potential and Mm. mystery because, you you know, you use that word. Yeah. That I think other other subjects or disciplines and just conventional life didn't expose me to, didn't really open up for me. So poetry, I think for me also was a, a vehicle for my own consciousness to expand. There's mm. no question. Like it, it was a it was a consciousness expanding vehicle for me. Mm. And even doing the exercise of deconstructing through, you know, those classes, the the poems and the literature, that was it was a technical exercise, but still there was something that I found I could like penetrate into and maybe it was just trying to understand the intent of the poet, but there was so much, yeah, there was just so much space in there that I usually would feel transported. And then similar to you, I, when I was in a spiritual community, I would often find Catholic churches in particular to meditate in because I Mm. found similar to what you said, the the quality of the silence Mm. in a, in a Catholic church, it's different than like I went to an Episcopal boarding school and we have, we had a beautiful chapel there. It didn't have the same transmission. It didn't have the same transmission as like when you go into a Catholic church, there's like a, there's just a vibe, man. That's, I think, you know, Catholicism does have more of a mystical core to it that is different. It's just different than some of the more Anglican traditions, in in my opinion. And mm. that at least so I found. But anyway, so I wanted to go back to this story of like when you when you're talking about early on you found yourself going to these Catholic spaces. Mm. So what kind of if you could take us in there a little bit more, like what do you remember like how did that obviously it was you were saying this was like a, a precursor and antecedent to you diving into meditation, which, if I understand correctly, you really discovered at Brown. Is that right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that kind of transition. Were you making the connection at that early stage? Like, what were you finding in that silence there in the Catholic Church? And then how did that translate when you started to pick up meditation at Brown? And, And then what, for you, when you were doing that, what changed for you in your life? 
why did that then become something that you pursued? Hey there. So are you interested in starting a meditation practice? Do you already have a meditation practice, but you feel like it's flagging? Let me introduce you to the Meditation for Life mini course, your guide to discovering the positivity, balance, and the ocean of calm that's already inside you. As you know, on this podcast, we interview people who have, in many respects, discovered that ocean of calm for themselves. And through our Meditation for Life mini course, we're really trying to provide you with the tools that are going to give you the ability to tap into that same positivity and balance and calm inside of yourself. Really, it's a way to discover a sustainable source of daily happiness. It's self-paced, and it's going to take you on a journey and give you some really essential tools. So we're talking a simple course here. It's like five in-depth lessons, five guided meditations, a couple beautiful infographics, a meditation challenge. But basically, if you can imagine what it would feel like to walk into work, for example, feeling light and free and ready for anything, if you can imagine being ready to manage family disputes with calm presence, or to stop beating yourself up and start caring more for the most important person in your life, you. So let's be clear up front. It doesn't take a lot of time, but if you invest a little every day, meditation can change your life. It's like learning any new skill. It gets a little easier each time. When you meditate every morning for 10 to 15 minutes, you'll notice things starting to change. Because every day, you're doing the inner work, the hardest work, first. You'll start your day generating focus, clearing your mind, and establishing a confident and grounded center. So remember, I love this quote. The great filmmaker David Lynch says, The thing about meditation is, you become more and more you. So what are you waiting for? Join us. Check out the Meditation for Life mini course over at aboutmeditation.com. So tell me a little bit about that kind of transition where you're making the connection at that early stage. Like, what were you finding in that silence there in the Catholic Church? And then how... Did that translate when you started to pick up meditation at Brown? And and then what for you when you were doing that, what changed for you in your life? Why did that then become something that you pursued? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I I don't think I've ever vocalized these thoughts around that, but it is something Mm -hmm. that I've thought a lot about. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I liked is that that silence didn't have words. Mm. And I think that sounds obvious. <laughs> no. I'm, but yeah. you know there there's always a tricky there's a tricky element of filling a spiritual space with words mm. because you run the risk of actually capturing a piece of the human experience that isn't entirely right. 
and that has ulterior motives. This is when I was a teenager, so I had no way of vocalizing this or maybe yeah. even understanding it. Yeah. But I definitely could hear that it wasn't the whole picture, and some of it might have actually been going against the bigger teachings. Mm. So, you know, the big teaching, mm. of course, yes. it's the same yeah. thing that every religion says. It's the golden rule, right? It's compassion. And then I heard things that sounded a lot like cruelty. And I was a little bit taken aback by that. And it was often subtle, and it might have been in a kind of hidden within doctrine or, you know, within the, the sort of bureaucratic aspects of the Roman, you know, Holy Roman Empire, mm. the Catholic enterprise. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't want to criticize because it's so many people find comfort in, in those rules and in, in that language. But I agree. I mean, I think that what is really special about, for example, poetry is that it's not easily understandable <laughs> yeah. and that it's really more about possibility than about prescription. Yeah. Mind you, that's a mind space. You have to really be sort of uh, willing to fall into that. Mm. And sometimes it is falling. It's a trust fall to some extent. Yeah. yeah. So that's the first thing. I like that the space left room for just silence. Mm. Then, of course, there was also the, uh, the sort of material elements that I ultimately found resonance with in other spiritual spaces like, you know, meditation centers and uh, meditation halls, like, for example, the incense. Yeah. Uh, like, for example, the mood lighting. <laughs> yeah. But then ultimately, what I really enjoyed and why I think I made the sort of jump from the Roman Catholic practice of spirituality to a more I think universalist, which including Buddhism practice, was that I just had to judge how I felt with the people I was encountering. And I think that in in Buddhism and in the Quanam school, a lot of the people who I met I related to, I enjoyed being with, they felt like fuller human beings. Mm. And it mm. might have been that maybe they were, by that point I was older and they were re relating to me in a different way. So I have to be fair that, you know, maybe people were just treating me like a teenager because I was a teenager. Yeah, right. But, I, but I, I think for myself, my personal experience was that I just started to have uh, more fulfilling conversations and relationships with the people that I was meeting in the meditation space. And, and to this day, that continues. Mm. Although the thing that's interesting is that now that I have a kiddo and, you know, I'm married and we have a house or a condo, you know, I, I, you don't have as much space to, you know, leave for a long retreat and that classic, <laughs> yeah, for sure. yeah. you know, and, and so there's that classic tension of the, the um, Mahayana, Hinayana, you know, large vehicle, small vehicle, uh, you know, how much, you know, are, are you a recluse or are you engaged in society? Yeah. My wife and I have found that we find a lot of resonance in uh, Unitarian Universalism, mm -hmm. which is, again, where I'm and we, we're, we we're part of a Unitarian Universalist church in Boston, where a lot of those elements have actually carried over. 
and the thing that's really cool is there's even a, a, a meditation group within the Unitarian Universalist uh, church that we go to, yeah. which I don't act, I actually just meditate at home. I don't do that as much because it's hard to get out of the house. Yes. <laughs> on a yeah. Sunday morning on February in Boston. Totally. By the way, I'd, I'd love to check that out sometime. If you could give me the name of the church at some point, I'd love to check it out. Sure. I'll plug it here. First Church Boston, down in the beautiful back bay of Boston, Massachusetts. Nice. Great place. The sermons, are, they're not even sermons. They feel like a spiritual college seminar series. Because they're they're so smart, mm, yeah. Uh, but yet they're but they talk about what people call normative truths, you know, that there is a right and wrong, and not everything's relative, yeah, and that we're here good. for a reason. <laughs> so, so, but I, I guess I'm still following that thread of, yeah. am I enjoying the people that I meet? Are they speaking something that feels uh, non toxic? Let's just start with non toxic. I mean, like. I think at this stage in, in the world, we're, let's just say, what's non-toxic? And then yeah. even more so, are they saying things that are, that are beneficial and that really sing to uh, something deeper? And then also, is there space in it for uh, my family and the world that I want to bring my son up in? That's, I think, where I am now in, yeah. in my current practice. Yeah. Interesting. So, all right. So you made this jump into the sort of Zen school and, and you found that folks were treating you differently. And as you alluded to, that could be a function of also your own particular life stage becoming more mature and evolving. At that time, did you do some, for example, like day-long retreats or, or weekend retreats? H how did that start to take hold of you, the practice of meditation? And like, I know for myself, just as an example, for me, the the first real traditional exposure I had was Tibetan Dzogchen meditation and and Dharma. I was very compelled when I read my first like basically book of Dharma, and I was shocked basically because it was all you know it was mind Dharma, and he was explaining like why we suffer you know there's this subject object duality it's mm. based on fear and desire and aversion in in at its core and that this gives rise to this sort of profound division within us and this tug of war in our in our being yeah and i you know i remember like my initial exposure to those teachings was like a certain measure of shock like how how did how have I not been exposed to this? You know, like mm. you, I kind of was raised in in a, a, well, probably a less strict because Episcopal is a, it's a lot looser, and we didn't have mm. any practice at home. We didn't go to church. It was more just boarding school. We go to chapel mm. every morning. Mm. But yeah, I'm curious then for so like that was powerful for me, and that I found that after really my first sort of transformative spiritual experience. So it kind of confirmed and gave structure to something I had already had in in a very raw kind of context of just like having my mind blown open and 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 my my perspective dramatically shifted. Then I found this book and and it kind of gave words to then something I already 
seem to know or understand. Mm. But but so my question then, and and I'm kind of offering that as like just a resonant point to what you're saying, like how then for you, just can you speak a little bit then about your exposure to Zen and, and why did that kind of, in addition to like what you're saying about people treating you differently, can you say a little bit about then the Dharma like that and how did that affect you? And then, you know, how did it take root in you? Because it sounds like it, yeah. it did and that you really actually stayed with it for a while and continue to this day. You know, those seeds are still bearing fruit. Yeah. In fruition. Yeah. Great question. So one of the things I also really enjoyed about Zen was that there wasn't a ton of reading. Mm. In fact, you were discouraged from reading. There also wasn't a lot of talking. There were the koans and there was uh, the Dharma interviews and all the rest. Yeah. But there wasn't a lot of talking. You know, being really thick in the academic world, I, uh, I enjoyed that element of it. At yeah. the same time, there's always the pull for, you know, those amongst us who have spent a lot of time reading and writing essays and all the rest. You want to sometimes read stuff. And so I started to find some books and I tried to keep within the, the tradition of not just, you know, reading, you know, like the someone who reads all books about Buddhism, calls themselves a Buddhist, but never meditates. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. So that's, that's always a, 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 you know, that's a well-known uh, sort of quote unquote deviant pathway yeah. uh, it, that deviates. Not that person is deviant, but you know, that's not really walking the, the path of the Buddha. Totally. It can be like intellectual candy Buddhism. Exactly. And so what I, a long time ago, I got a pocket Tao Te Ching. Uh, and what I would often do is I would just read one of the little pieces yep, yep. Uh, and then use that as something to sort of ruminate on. You know, if you needed some words, you just take one of those and uh, almost like a marble that you just kind of shift around in your mouth, like a hard yes. candy. Yeah. Stephen Mitchell had a translation of that. Tao Te Ching. And Stephen Mitchell's translation is the one I actually have right here in, in front of me holding it's beautiful. I, it's totally. And and what I really liked about it was, you know, he wrote it with a Zen perspective, with a Buddhist perspective. Mm. I ultimately later on learned that Zen Buddhism was a combination of what uh, Bodhidharma had brought up from India, and then also what was combined with Taoism mm. to become Chan. And so the Tao Te Ching holds a lot of resonance with this modern day Taoism. Uh, looks very different in China, but but yet the Tao Te Ching, you know, the seminal text, when translated through <laughs> a Buddhist sort of lens, just for me was sort of my my new canonical text. Yes, got it. And so then um, from there, within this little book, I once got a, a meditation mat and some incense from a, a company. And they sent me a little, a little poem. And, and actually, I, well, actually, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't get it from them, but I, maybe I got it from the quantum school. But it's, uh, and it's something that I would read often. This is kind of my seminal sort of oration. And it, I don't know if you've heard it. It's called The Human Route. I don't know if I've heard it. Do you mind if I read it? Please. So The Human Route. Coming empty-handed, going empty-handed, that is human. 
When you are born, where do you come from? When you die, where do you go? Life is like a floating cloud which appears. Death is like a floating cloud which disappears. The floating cloud itself originally did not exist. Life and death, coming and going, are also like that. But there is one thing which always remains clear. It is pure and clear, not depending on life and death. What then is the one pure and clear thing? And I loved that it ends with a question. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right? Right? yeah. Imagine, imagine, you know, the Lord's Prayer being like, so Jesus, what did you teach us? <laughs> yes. You know, it, it, instead it says, yeah, this yeah. is what you taught us. Bang, you know, exclamation yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. Whereas this, it, it never answers the question. And you have to find that question in silence. Yeah. Uh, and it's what we're looking for is beyond words. By ending with a question, it leaves it open that you're still searching and we'll never find it, right? Mm. But perhaps that comes with enlightenment. But, you know, as Zen Master Sing Son said, wanting enlightenment is a great mistake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is a big mistake, actually, he said. And then, you know, and maybe it's only in death that we actually find these things. But don't be afraid because that is, even if it doesn't maintain your personality and your body and your house and all the things that you built through your life, all that is not true. That will disappear and that's okay. What's left is something pure and clear. And that's for me is very comforting in that mm. uncertainty and that silence and that almost blank space. There's, there's great comfort. Mm. And I, I, I find that I often will tap into that comfort when I'm the most scared and anxious, uh, when I'm also facing great existentialism from what I see in my work, uh, abroad, you know, post Ebola, West Africa had a lot of unanswered questions. I think that the wards, when you see someone who's young and otherwise healthy suffer uh, a tremendous illness, and you ask why, you know? Why do bad things happen to good people and why do yeah. good things happen to bad people? It's, there are no answers, easy answers to any of those experiences. And sometimes you have to just find comfort in the silence and in, you know, that great other oration in Buddhism, which is don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. But yet there's something pure and clear within that, that space of not knowing. And that's why I, that's why I stick around. That's why I still, <laughs> yeah, I still sit and I still try to find that space. So let's talk about that space a little. And, Maybe could you share, for example, a moment or an event where maybe you were at your edge, whether it was fear, panic, or anger, or one of these existential moments which you were outlining, where then you turned to your practice and you turned toward that silence and it answered. Sure. So, I, I mean, I, I could take the easy way out and talk about, you know, 
an experience where I saw someone else going through it, but I'll be honest and I'll talk about myself. So um, there's this old saying that the best medical teachers say to their students, their medical students, which is, I hope you get sick, but then survive because then you'll be a truly great doctor. Right, right. <laughs> Not like, I hope you get sick and die, <laughs> but I hope you get sick and survive. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, I actually have been cursed with great health my entire life until you sort of hit the 30s yeah. and little things start happening. And, you know, I do a lot of travel, so I'm always getting some sort of tropical illness. And luckily, the vast majority of them are curable with just a short course of antibiotics. But I had, you know, a couple of vague symptoms and I, and I went to my primary care doctor out at um, Beth Israel and, you know, being a very good primary care doctor sort of started following the threads of little data points that other doctors might blow off and not being very, you know, attentive to the details and ultimately came to uh, a differential, you know, uh, had to basically say like, Dan, we found some stuff. There's a possibility of what's going on here. And on that differential was Crohn's disease, lymphoma, you know, to nothing, to just like a, a you know, vitamin deficiency. Yeah. Or just like a parasite infection. Yeah. And so then you get that information, you go home, right? And like now, you know, I had spent all these years meditating on, you know, the cloud disappearing and appearing and being, <laughs> having great comfort. But now it was home, right? Like my cloud was starting to disappear a little bit, or at least I could envision that this cloud I had enjoyed, this cumulus nimbus I had spent so many years developing and, and racked up great loans to create, <laughs> had the risk of evaporating. Yeah. And so I found, I actually found that it hit me viscerally. I was sent back to when I was a toddler or, you know, a young kid in the hospital with terrible pneumonia, deoxygenating, you know, my oxygen level dropping and yeah. they're, them considering intubating me. Yeah. And that's no longer in your control. You know, that's an animal response. That's instinct. There's yeah. survival, the survival instinct. Yeah. There's something very um, overwhelming about that moment. And usually the techniques that were taught in Western society, and I think probably most societies to deal with that is, you know, let me get a drink to calm my nerves. Uh, let me distract myself with whatever sort of sets up something that resembles meditation, like an iPhone game, or, you know, some people find it in all sorts of behaviors, which you know, may or may, may not bring them comfort, but it's not a sort of restructuring of this chaos. Mm -hmm. What it is, is that someone essentially, you know, and physicians need to learn this, is that when you give someone differential, you're actually setting their house on fire. Yeah. You know, all the lattice work that they had created to consider who they are and what they had planned for the future, it was now on fire. And so I actually went and started to reread. I would love to say that I then just sat in long meditation and found my answer. I'll have to say that I was so thrown for a loop that yeah. I, I had to actually stay with words first. Yeah. I, I, I just, I, need, I was in a hole. 
right? No, yeah, no shame in that, man. Right? And I had to just kind of pull myself out with words. And the Tao Te Ching was not doing it for me <laughs> because uh, it was just too, too cryptic. I, yeah. I needed something that was not cryptic. Explicit. Yeah, that was ex- explicit. But I also, you know, I, I'll even, you know, admit that I, I cracked open the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, because, you know, you, you, you go back to it, right? You're just like, yeah. we're, you know, you, you start from the beginning again. Who am I and, and what am I doing and why am I here? And I didn't find the answers there. So I started to read a book that was kind of like a combination of all the writings of Zen Master Seng San back when he was first came to Brown. And they put it together in a couple of different books, but one book in particular called Dropping Ashes on the Buddha, mm. the teaching of Zen Master Seng San. And uh, it's very funny because he was a very weird guy by, you know, a lot of measures. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a story about how, you know, he, he walked into a Zen center and uh, there was a Buddha and everyone said, you can't smoke here. And he dropped ashes on the Buddha's head, kind of saying that, you know, don't attach. This is this is the ultimate test of non-attachment. Yeah. The statue is not the Buddha. Yeah. And the Buddha is not a god. Yeah. Right? Buddha was a human being that was probably covered in ashes and soot and mites and dust and lice. So dropping ashes on the Buddha. And and I really, really enjoyed reading it. And I found I found that it calmed me uh, in a way that I could then start my practice again. Now, ultimately, it ended up being nothing or near nothing. So I, I don't want to say that, like, you know, I now have end-stage cancer and I, and I found great equanimity in, in silence and truth. I don't, know, I don't know if I'm that strong. And I don't want anyone that's going through that to feel like it's just that easy. You know, you read some Seng San and you're, like, suddenly, you know, okay with what's happening. Yeah. But for me, at least I felt like, well, there's a space within me, a sort of uh, a nugget that I can try to find. And that act of finding that, not even finding it, but the practice of looking for it, that is a place where I can go back to when I'm thrown for a loop again. Mm. And I know what it looks like. I almost envision it as like a like a black hole, but in like a good way. <laughs> Not that yeah. it's sucking me in, but that there's there's mystery of what's inside, but that walking to it is actually itself perhaps reason alone for why I'm here on the planet. Mm. And that being able to be within that space, that journey, and finding uh, compassion for all sentient beings, that itself, that too is also part of that journey. Yeah. And I, I find it as both, you know, not just a black hole that attracts me to it, but that also radiates truth and compassion mm. um, and helps me find compassion for when I'm overworked and underslept and, and seeing endless tragedy. Yeah. Or my patients are infuriating because they're going through their own challenges. I then find compassion for their challenges and how they're challenging me, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Within that practice. 
And that's a practice that I think I do every waking moment. Uh, and sometimes because of kiddos and, you know, setting in you know, cooking and, and call schedule and all this other stuff, I don't have time to sit down and, and I haven't gone to a six hour retreat in, in a long time. But yet that practice is still what I'm doing pretty much every waking moment. At least I try. Yeah. So, and it, and it sounds like then when you came home after that, you called it a differential that the doctor gave you. Yeah. That's like a list of all the possibilities, the differential diagnosis. Got it's, it. You might have cancer. You might have nothing. Good, ho- good luck. We'll tell you in a month. <laughs> right. Jeez, man. I know. Doctors, Yeah. Man. That's yes, doctors, man. But like you said, it's a perfect crucible for mm-hmm. the unknown and it really is. walking into it and embracing it. And it it sounds like then from your your story there that there wasn't like an aha moment that it was a gradual deepening and releasing into this kind of ground of your own humanity, your own kind of practice of compassion and relationship you know, obviously both with yourself, but with humanity, with life, with the mystery. And exactly. that's beautiful. I, I think, you know, we're kind of getting towards the end here, but I would love to just round it out and talk based on everything we've spoken about here. Can you speak a little bit to, and, and you really alluded to this just now in what you just said, but can you speak a little bit to kind of the fusion of your practice and your and your medical practice, the practice and your vocation, as it were, and how those two, how you see those really informing each other, and and you really did speak to that a little bit just now. I could I really yeah. could hear it, but can you can you flesh that out for everyone a little bit? And, sure. Yeah. So and, and the and the hospice part is also really interesting to me, but you well, know what wherever you want to go. Fantastic. Yeah. That's a good way to round it out, round out the conversation. So I see a lot of people pushing for meditation in physicians. And what I often see in a lot of the apps and others is generally a personal pursuit. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But it's this idea that you can maximize your attention to increase your productivity. And that's in a very American and very capitalist way of viewing this ancient totally. wisdom. Yeah. yeah. And I, it would be overstating to say that I'm troubled by it, but I don't think it's getting the full picture. And I think that it's also missing out on what ultimately has been the most important element of all of this for my practice as a physician and as a human being. And I think it comes down to the idea of, of compassion, that compassion is not sympathy. Compassion is not bedside manner. Compassion is not only those things. The practice of compassion is a feeling of great and deep connection with another human being. Some of them might be my patients, but some of them might also be their family members. It might be the nurses. It might be, you know, the person who delivers the food to the patients and is often treated poorly, right? Because they're 
a lot of times poor or minority, people don't even like recognize them, right? The janitor. One of the things I often use, and it's terrible that I'm saying this because whoever is going to get an interview with me is now going to know this. And if they if they listen to this, then they're definitely getting getting the job. <laughs> yeah, because it means they have good taste in uh, in in spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. But I ask them, "What's the name of the person who cleans your office?" That for me is a bodhisattva, right? Like someone who actually knows the name of the person who cleans their office is that you can't teach that. That's something that goes. You can teach it, but you it takes a lot of meditation to get there. <laughs> yeah. For me, so that for me is is the most important thing is the cultivation of compassion. When you turn on the news, when you look at the internet, when you look at what our leaders are doing, it's singing the exact opposite song. And I'm really worried about an entire generation learning the opposite of compassion. Yeah. Learning hate, learning anger, learning vitriol. And so we need a new practice. And I would love all of the apps to build upon this personal pursuit of decrease your anxiety, increase your productivity, to actually say, increase how much you love your neighbor. And then it brings us back to to what all religions are teaching. And Buddhism, I think, is great in that it lends itself to that and doesn't make you a scribe and sign at the dotted line of a doctrine. But then at the same time, so the funny thing is that, I, I don't know if you've noticed, I've been dancing a little bit around calling myself a Buddhist because yeah. I have this great book by uh, Dzongsar uh, Kayense, who's uh, in the Tibetan practice. Yeah. And it's called, um, What Makes You Not a Buddhist? Have you seen this book? I know, but I know the teacher. I know the oh, Buddhist great. Day. Did I say his name right? I think so. Awesome. So it says, so you think you're a Buddhist. And he says, uh, if, he says, if the essence of Buddhism, which he presents to the reader as a set of challenges, can you accept that all things are impermanent and there is no essential, essential substance or concept that is permanent? Two, can you accept that all emotions bring pain and suffering and that there is no emotion that is purely pleasurable? Three, can you accept that all phenomena are illusory and empty? Four, can you accept that enlightenment is beyond concepts, that it's not a perfect blissful heaven, but instead a release from delusion? And this book, I love this book, because it it now brings a new level of challenge to my practice. And it brings me back to that space, that original space that made me so freaked out when I got my differential diagnosis. Mm. And that's where I am now Yeah, in my practice of medicine, uh, of global health, and Buddhism. And thank you so much for the opportunity to tell my story. It's a pleasure. And I think, so one person I'd like to recommend is a, he's a poet that I've been listening to recently. And, and I say listen instead of read because he's, I think he's Welcher. He he grew up in Yorkshire, I believe, but also has Irish kind of heritage. So, he, or or maybe he's Irish and then kind of grew grew up in Yorkshire. But he his name is David White, mm. W H Y T E, and I think he's his work is has a heavy Zen influence, but mm. it's 
you'll feel like the Celtic kind of song deep oh. in the, it, right through the middle of it. Mm. And a lot of his poetry, I feel, captures some of the themes that we've been talking about, you know, reckoning with the reality of our our mortality, that all of us are living with a terminal diagnosis. <laughs> and, you know, that's just, you know, that's the nature of life. But he he really has a way of speaking where he brings so many of the things that we we're talking about, he, he brings them into the sphere of his poetry and boom, you know, it's just like he opens up that space that we're talking about. It's very awesome. sacred. It's got a, a slight, as you would expect from an Irish poet, you know, a tinge of melancholy to it, but I don't think it's a negative thing. It's, awesome. it's, yeah, it's really evocative stuff and I, I recommend it. I'm going to try and find and send to you a couple of the free online kind of audios awesome. that, he, that he has. And I'll, everyone, I will post those in the show notes too so you can access those. So I'm, I'm hoping to interview him on the show. I, I just think he's really a remarkable poet. And just again, when it comes to compassion, when it comes to humanity, and it, when it comes to like the imminent terrestrial like a, a, agonizing hmm. dimension of our humanity and finding you know, finding our humanity in the middle of that. And and I love the, the metaphor that you beautifully kind of used to kind of capture that about like, you know, I hope you get really sick as, so you can become a great surgeon, a great doctor. <laughs> that's an amazing, I really think that was a beautiful, that's that's its own little koan. Yeah, it really is. It's really, really awesome. But um, so how, Dan, if, and, and this may not be relevant, a, a lot of the, People I interview have websites or they have a Facebook page or they have a context where people can get in touch. But, you know, if anyone wanted to follow up with you after this interview and just connect with you, how would they do that? Is that something you're open to? Yeah, of course. I think that we're building community here to yeah. a large extent. And I applaud yes. you for setting up this space to talk and also applaud your listeners for taking the time to walk through this um, story with us. Mm. The best way is, you know, you can learn more about the work that we're doing at PIH.org. Yes. And then my contact information is available through PIH.org. I don't have a, a personal page that sort of speaks to my story, but I'm a relatively accessible sort of mainstay in the global health community. Cool. And I make a I make a lot of time for connecting with people through, you know, all walks of life. Even have like a sort of office hours sign up sheet, <laughs> which awesome. uh, which is makes it very easy for folks to sign up with me to see life and stuff. But yeah, but definitely pih.org and which stands for Partners in Health. That's right. Pih.org. I'll link that up on the website. Excellent. And um, yeah, but Dan, thank you very much man i've really this has been fantastic and i obviously i didn't expect us to find all this kind of literary overlap too yeah which, it's been delightful and thank you for sharing your yourself your your story with everybody it's great i've really loved the conversation great well uh thanks so much and i enjoyed being here and, and i hope that this is the first of many more conversations going forward definitely so i hope you enjoyed 
my interview with Dr. Daniel Palisuelos. And I have linked up in the show notes how you can get in touch with him over at partnersinhealthpih.org. And if you enjoyed today's show, I want to ask you to please leave us a rating and a review over on iTunes. I can't tell you what a gigantic, huge, awesome difference that makes for us. Every rating and a review exposes us to so many new meditators. So help us get the show in front of more people. Leave us a rating and a review. It, it makes a huge difference for us. And if you want to take your own meditation practice to the next level, I encourage you to check out some of our courses over at aboutmeditation.com. So we have tons of courses. I think you'll love them. Aboutmeditation.com for new and intermediate meditators. Head on over there and check them out. And as always, I'd like to end with a quote. And today, I thought I would read a poem from David White, the poet that we mentioned in this episode. And the poem is called Revelation Must Be Terrible. Here we go. Revelation must be terrible with no time left to say goodbye. Imagine that moment staring at the still waters with only the brief tremor of your body to say you are leaving everything and everyone you know behind. Being far from home is hard, but you know at least you are exiled together. When you open your eyes to the world, you are on your own for the first time. No one is even interested in saving you now, and the world steps in to test the calm fluidity of your body from moment to moment, as if it believed you could join its vibrant dance of fire and calmness and final stillness as if you were meant to be exactly where you are, as if like the dark branch of a desert river, you could flow on without a speck of guilt and everything everywhere would still be just as it should be. And as if your place in the world mattered and the world could neither speak nor hear the fullness of its own bitter and beautiful cry without the deep well of your body resonating in the echo. Knowing that it only takes that one terrible word to make the circle complete, revelation must be terrible, knowing you can never hide your voice again. <laughs>